friends at Collective, it is so good to virtually be with you today. I appreciate Rob's confidence in my tech abilities, even though he may have overestimated me. Um, let's see how this goes. Today, I wanted us to talk about Romans 8, which is one of the lectionary texts for this week. It's one of those that has so many quotes in it that sometimes we can miss the actual words and this vision that God is giving through the words of Paul. I'm going to read it to you now. Romans 8, 26 through 39. The Spirit of God helps us in our weakness, for we do not know even how to pray as we should, but that very Spirit of God intercedes with sighs and groans too deep for words. And God who searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. We know this because God knew in advance and decided in advance that we would belong and be conformed to the image of Jesus, so that Jesus would be the firstborn within this larger family. And those that God decided would be conformed, he also called. And the ones that he called, he justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things, Paul says? If God is for us, who is against us? God, the one who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us, won't he also not hold anything back, but give us all things? Who is going to bring a charge then against us? If it is God who justifies, who is going to condemn us? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, and was raised at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who then will separate us from the love of Jesus? Will hardship separate us or distress or persecution or disaster for it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long, and we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it preaches itself. Like, what else is there to say? I can imagine Paul, when he is writing this, just getting more and more fired up, thinking about all that has already been done. The fact that when God created us, we already were called to be people who belong to God, that we were 100% worthy of love and belonging before anybody else had an opinion. And then all the things we experience that Paul is speaking against is saying, whatever it is that you imagine can separate you from a God who is for you, it cannot, does not have that power. We have already been freed and liberated and we are image bearers and live in that reality. So if I am a person worthy of love and belonging, who is going to bring a charge against me? Who is going to condemn me when I have already been set free? And yet a lot of our lives are not lived in that freedom and that liberated state, but we live as people who are condemned and are in that place of shame. 
And that's because as much as we have this hope, we also live in this place where there is still difficulty. So I don't know if you've ever been in a difficult place and somebody has said to you, uh, this too shall pass, or kind of reminded you that everything's going to turn out fine. And those things may be true, but you kind of got to know your audience. Like, it may be comforting, but it may also not be the time if you're in the midst of things that are very concerning, if you're experiencing suffering or even terror, you know. And so the gift of Paul's words, though, are, are not only that they can be encouraging in places of difficulty, but they also give the bigger picture of God's restorative work and the reconciling work that we are a part of and it has begun but we're also having to remember at times when we can't see it that it's still playing out so as much as we appreciate these words of encouragement it can be really hard when it's different than what we're actually seeing okay does anybody remember baby jessica what was her last name jessica mcclure okay i don't know if you remember this 18 month old toddler baby girl who uh, in Midland, Texas, fell down a well in her aunt's backyard. But I was seven years old at the time. It was in 1987. So do the math, figure out how old I am. And this, uh, the entire world watched because she fell down a well that was about eight inches in diameter and it was 22 feet deep. So it was a three day process where rescue workers were working tirelessly to try to come up with creative ways to save her because there was not enough room to go down into the well. And so they built alongside the well a parallel um, opening and basically spent 58 hours drilling through 50 inches of granite. So super long, super arduous process. I cannot imagine the stress because when I think back to it, I think of how she was rescued and we have this photo of her being brought out after three days of no food and water and being all alone, right? But the thing is, when she was down there and people were working so hard to save her, that was kind of unknown, like how's this going to turn out? And so when I was telling this story to my daughter, she hated it. She does not like the story. She doesn't care that, um, you know, it turns out great. I mean, that's fine for her. But instead, she was focused on the 58 hours that it took and what was happening with this poor baby during those 58 hours. She's thinking about the darkness and the unknown and the fear and those small cries from within the well. So throughout my adult life, I have referred to these moments where I feel trapped as my baby Jessica in the well moments. <laughs> Maybe I was a little too obsessed with her. But those places or circumstances where I least want to be, where I try as hard as I can to get out of, I, I don't like it. It's a situation where I cannot control, I can't fix things. I can't rescue myself, you know, and I can't imagine anything beyond the darkness or the shame that I am currently experiencing. So in those places and in the confusion, whether it's after being fired or after a relationship ends or after a massive mistake that I've made or some of the moments of my past addiction, you know, all of those things, whether it's a disaster or things I've done or have been done to me, 
that space where all I can see is fear, all I can see is grief, all I can see is humiliation. Those are when I feel like I am emotionally trapped in that well. When I'm saying how, 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 how is this ever going to get better? How is there ever going to be any kind of resolve? How am I gonna experience joy or peace or life again when all I can feel right now is that darkness? So some of the baby Jessica moments that I've had uh, were completely things that just happened to me. Other times it was my decision that led me into that well. Um, maybe I walked into my own chaos or I dove headfirst into the well knowing that it was a bad decision. But what's great is that Paul's message does not distinguish between was this your fault? You know, that there's darkness or sword or distress. Um, instead, the word is that no matter what it is, whatever that distress is, whatever the destruction is, that nothing can separate us from that. Whoever is at fault in that place, you know. Um, and so what I get from that is that the text is not about the source of darkness, but the God who is somehow still present in the midst of anything. No matter what you are experiencing right now. I know there are times that you have felt trapped in that kind of way. There are times when you're keenly aware of your inability to fix yourself or heal or rescue yourself. And in those moments, more than anything, we need a God with whom all power and strength and wisdom reside, right? So baby Jessica, going back to my friend, could not save herself. There was nothing that she could do in that moment. In fact, one of the most disturbing things to me is her being in that small space and having one leg above her head and one leg down, literally trapped and unable to move and having to wait to be rescued. But the good news is that God is always in the business of rescuing, even when we feel the most hopeless. God knows the picture. God knows the end of the story. God knows that God's love will have the final word, no matter what it is that we experience. So Romans 8 says that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who have been called by God. Nothing about this text reflects the cliches we may have heard. Everything happens for a reason, or God causes all things that happen. Instead, we're offered something so much bigger than just a simplistic and false word of comfort. What we are offered is a God who calls and who knows, and the good that God works together is so much bigger. God knew us in advance and loved us in advance. And before we ever had the chance to accept or reject this love and this calling, it was already there. And nothing has changed that. Not our disobedience or our obedience or the things that we've done or the um, ways in which we've treated others has not rescinded the love of God and the fact that we have been called to look like God. Because God is the one that reached out first. In all things, God initiates love. We love because we were first loved, right? And so in this place where we feel that darkness, knowing that God's love has already spoken power and strength to us. So the good that Paul is talking about here 
is not just things working out the way that we want. We know that. It's the bigger picture of the restorative work that God is doing in humanity, that we are becoming people who more and more live out of a grounded place of being loved. And so the good not just includes our lives, but is also the work God is doing in creation and how all of creation is being renewed and restored because of the work that has already been done with Jesus. And so somehow anything that happens in our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, God is able to bring about a, an intimacy with himself and a depth um, into his heart that we had not previously known. That doesn't mean the events or circumstances themselves are always good. Some of them are absolutely, you know, a result of injustice and evil and oppression in this world. The things in themselves are not good. And yet somehow God restores and heals and brings maturity and life and freedom in the places where we would least expect and that we would least want God to. Like somehow in the midst of the reality of darkness, God and God's love have the last word. We know. When Paul says that we know, when Paul says not just that God is that God says, but we know that God works these things for good. It's not an informational kind of knowledge. It's this deep sense that I have seen God act and I will see God act again, that I have experienced the person of God. And so I'm not trusting blindly that God's going to bring about this change. I have seen God act in ways that I couldn't have anticipated or bringing goodness that I could never have imagined and believing that that same God is for us and with us. And so we are loved. We are already liberated. We are already image bearers. And we're learning to live out of that. What my daughter said in hating the story of baby Jessica, I was offended at first. I was like, hey, can I show you an article from People magazine? where she says her life is a miracle and don't worry she's 34 and she has two children of her own and I realized my tendency to minimize the darkness that Elia my kid is right it's terrible thinking about a baby trapped in a well all alone in there for three days not knowing what the outcome would be we would cheapen Paul's words if we minimize the darkness it's not that Paul in this text is saying we are more than conquerors because God has obliterated every single thing that could ever harm us. It's not that God's love means there is no sort or famine or distress or persecution. It's that somehow nothing, nothing that the world can throw at us can actually separate us from the love of God. From a loving presence, which means that more than just the absence of violence or distress or difficulty, what I need is a presence and a love that nothing can end. But I don't want to ever pretend that the dark isn't dark. Because in our world, we see that darkness exists along with light. And that is going to be our story until God brings about the full restoration and reconciliation of the world. We're going to live in that place. Jesus, being our example, 
being the one who brought about this redemption and reconciliatory process had to suffer was not able to escape that place of suffering, but lived in that um, tension where know what the end of the story is going to be. And yes, I'm also sweating blood awaiting crucifixion. You don't sweat blood unless you're in a place of fear and anxiety. These are the real things that the Son of God experienced. And so we also don't escape that suffering and that point of pain. Baby Jessica happened to have had a successful rescue, but it doesn't take away the three days of terror. And even though this was a successful rescue, we know that a lot of rescues in our world are not successful. We have to have something more than that to hold on to. So these proclamations of God's restorative plan don't eradicate the doubts and the questions. They don't take away the experience we have, um, the dissonance between what we've heard from God and what we're experiencing. But it does give us a bigger picture that yes, the pain and suffering are true, but somehow what is more true is the love of God and the work that God is doing to bring about this kingdom of love and light and to bring that about within us as individuals, not just as a group. We live in this place between that we groan in prayer and somehow we haven't been abandoned. When baby Jessica was being rescued, the rescue workers lowered down a microphone so that they could keep tabs on her because she was so far down, they weren't able to just check on her pulse and her breathing and make sure that she was still alive. And so not only did it allow them to speak to her, but they also were able to hear her. And so as her parents and the workers were encouraging her, saying, we're here with you, we haven't left you, they also kept asking her to sing. And it brought incredible hope and joy to the rescue workers and the parents because this little baby who's trapped in this place was singing. And she was singing Winnie the Pooh, apparently, over and over again. It was a familiar song to her. When she was in that place, um, it wasn't time for her to learn a new song. Instead, she sang the song that was most familiar to her. Maybe that's what we do when we are trapped in that place where we cannot imagine things being different. We can't picture a way out. It's not our time to learn a new theological song. It's maybe the time to sing what we already know, that God is that we've seen God act before, that God is for us, even though we can't imagine a way out and we cannot picture anything but the darkness and the shame and the rejection and the grief that we are facing. We don't passively wait. Surrender, allowing ourselves to be rescued, is not about giving up. Maybe it is about singing the songs that we know to be true, songs that build up this idea of goodness. I wonder if our baby Jessica places would be the very words of Paul at the end of Romans 8. Who or what can separate us from the love of God? What? Name it. What have you experienced? What has the world thrown at you? What is it that we believe can separate us from God 
and God's love? Or what have others told us can separate us from the love of God? Is it our mistakes? Is it the things people say about us? Is it what we have, what we don't have, that somehow we've believed things can drive a wedge in the most intimate, familial, personal, and God-ordained relationship that we're in? And get set, and we are loved, whether or not we live out of that. And that means, because the relationship has not been initiated by us, that even if we reject it, it's still there, and that love is still available. The reality that nothing can separate us from this love isn't just a nice concept. I like what N.T. Wright says, that love is the ultimate assurance. It's truer than what we can see happening presently. It's truer than what we can imagine. Love is not an idea to be worked out, he says, but a fact, an experienced fact, something that cannot be denied any more than we can deny our own breathing. Even in the darkness, we see the unshakable evidence of God's love through Jesus. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things ahead, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor the scariest things, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from my love that is for me. Paul doesn't say that the love of God means the absence of difficulty, but as we have said many times together, it's the presence of God in the midst of anything that gives us the hope that somehow offers what we most need. Which song are we going to sing? Part of our response is building up this song, this point of God's goodness in our hearts, that God is willing to carry us, that the Spirit intercedes for us, that we are known, whether in the good places or the difficult places. Let this be your song, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Let it be your song when you have no words. Let it be the song that carries you. The dark is real, but even more real is the love and strength and power that are for you, that you belong, that you are called, and that there is a God who sings for you.